Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by ultra runner and coach Sarah Kais. Sarah and I had a great discussion today talking about a number of things that will help you to be a better trail runner. So whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, I think you'll find this conversation highly valuable. So let's tune in. Sarah, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, I heard you on another podcast and sounds like you're really good at what you do with coaching trail runners. You are a trail runner yourself. You're an ultra runner yourself. So you kind of know the ins and outs of all things trails, which is why I'm excited to have you on here. Um, but first off, who are you? Sure. So, um, I'm Sarah. I live in the Adirondacks of upstate New York. Uh, it's about an hour from the Canadian border. We have, um, several kind of what, what we consider high mountains here, but they're only, you know, about 4,000 feet in elevation or, um, or a little bit more than that. And so, but they're very rugged, a lot of technical terrain. And so my background started in sky running actually, where, um, you know, I traveled the U.S. a little bit and did some sky running races that mostly take place at like um, ski resorts, you know, similar to OCR races, actually, because um, you're able to have a higher field you know, or larger field of people at a ski resort and uh, they have that elevation gain that you need. So um, technical running is kind of my background and where I started. Um, and then I got into ultra running uh, a little bit more when I was like, you know, just sort of like that frontier thing where you're like, how far can I go? Like, what's the next step here? Um, and so eventually hundred milers came onto my radar. And so the last couple of years I've been focusing on hundred milers. Um, but I think I might dial that back a little bit. You know, it's, uh, been fun to do these shorter distance races where you can do more of them, um, which is fun and enjoyable. But, uh, I also, so I coach remotely, I've uh, been coaching for a few years, um, and actually I've coached some OCR athletes in the past and some in Australia, it seems like Australia has a huge, uh, OCR community, which is pretty cool. Um, but also just, you know, beginner trail runners, advanced trail runners, all ages and, and, um, and, you know, abilities. Uh, and then I also work as a nurse. So I'm a per diem, uh, med surge nurse here, um, in my smaller rural hospital, but I love it. It's really, uh, enjoyable. And then, uh, yeah, I guess that's kind of all the hats I wear. Well, sort of. I also am part of uh, the International Trail Running Association, the American Trail Running Association, um, and then some local groups too. But yeah, so I do a lot of things. You are the trail expert is what you're saying. <laughs> well, I don't know if I go that far, but you know, <laughs> I guess certain circles, it's all relative, right? Exactly. So true. So true. Well, let's talk about... Um, the technical part of trails, because obviously that's a huge difference besides the hill factor, the elevation factor, like the technicality is a huge difference between that and road running. Um, how do you go about training people to like be able to run fast on those technical terrains, both uphill and downhill? Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad you talked about this because it is a learned skill, you know, like, um, I always tell my athletes too, like I have people that live in, you know, cities or people that live in the country or places where they don't have access to trail too. Um, you know, and so just being consistent and running is better than anything, you know, just get out there and can being consistent with it. Um, but to actually train for trail running, you know, the, one of the biggest things is cadence. So increasing your cadence, because when you're running, um, uphill and downhill, you want a pretty quick cadence, uh, on technical terrain. It just makes less, 
it's kind of like backward thinking almost in my mind, but like the higher step count you have, it's actually less force on your body. But to me, like, it always seems kind of funny. It doesn't seem like it should work that way, but it does. <laughs> and um, you actually want, yeah. So like when you're running on technical terrain downhill, especially you want like very quick, fast cadence, quick turnover, very light. You know, I always tell my athletes, like, imagine you're like running on lava or something like that. So it's like very quick and, and, uh, uh you know, easy, or, you know, try to be easy on your body, but also wide leg stance so that you have a better, um, you know, control of your upper body. Um, and then looking at like, it's like skiing or um, downhill running specifically, it's like skiing or mountain biking, where you're like looking ahead at the line ahead of you and like choosing it and not looking like directly down at your feet. Um, I think those are important things. And I think it's important to train um, downhill running, especially because I don't think people do that a lot where, you know, I try to give my athletes intervals where, we do a lot of hill work, but hopefully they can make it to a technical trail if they're training for a technical race, like not necessarily necessary if you're not going to be on a technical uh, terrain in a race, but, um, you know, really going somewhere on the weekends, if you don't have it, you know, at home and, and practicing running downhill on technical terrain, um, the more you do it, the better you will be at it. Um, and then with uphill kind of similar, you know, you're looking to find, um, uh, you know, gear that you can kind of grind it out that, you know, it just take again, takes a lot of practice to, you know, on a necessarily red line yourself and put, you know, um, I always tell my athletes the first few Hills in a race better to walk them than to run them and feel like you're already beyond your abilities. So you won't come back from that, you know, but if you can, uh, run the la ladder Hills in a race, you're probably going to be able to pass people and, you know, move better. So the beginning of the, uh, of a race, you certainly want to, you know, I tell people to be a little conservative because it's easy to go out too hard and, you know, be excited and, and get uh, sucked into all of that. But um, with uphill technical trail running, you know, it's the same, you want like a fast cadence and you want to train it. Um, and in training, it's okay to like push that heart rate. Some, you know, I think people, we hear a lot about like, keep your easy days really easy. And I think, um, you know, the more I do this and the training I do is some, um, one particular woman that I've done a lot of training with is Chloe Lanthier and she's based out of Chamonix. And so she does a lot of, uh, technical trail running webinars and things like that. Um, and she's, you know, from a European viewpoint, she's training a lot more with skill, um, and intensity than necessarily just like going out and plodding along. I think there's a place for people to do that, you know, especially if you're brand new to running, you've got to like go out and get time on feet and put the stress on the joints and tendons and those sorts of things. But, um, I think it's important to like, not be afraid to like enter the pain cave, even on like just a middle of the week run, like for a little while, like that's not going to like set you back. You know, it's like when you go out and you're doing consistent, like over threshold pace runs, cause you feel like it's easy. It's probably not easy, you know, uh, or you think it's easy. It's not easy. Um, but that's it. We could talk about that different, but yeah. So I guess my, my main point here is that, uh, create, you know, like, thinking of trail running as a skill is a good way, you know, it's a good place to start and training for that specifically. Yeah. Are there for people who just like maybe don't have access, like they maybe live in like middle of the Midwest and they're going to say, come to like Arizona or your area where those trails are a lot more technical. Are there mm -hmm. ways that they can start like preparing their legs for the technical portions or like their ankles and all of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So 
That's a great point too. Um, you know, working on strength is really important. So if you live in a place, yeah, that you just don't have technical terrain. Um, so increasing your cadence, like we talked about, um, and what you can do on roads and you should be training that on roads anyway, um, to become more efficient, you know, and thinking like that the sidewalk or the road is lava, you know, so you're doing fast, fast turnover. Sometimes when you say to somebody like, uh, cadence, it doesn't really sink in, but if you're like, yeah, like quick light, like, um, you know, you can obviously count it, you know, and, and count to try to get to where you are. So for folks that don't know, like if you go out and you run and warm up and run a little bit and then do this where you count just one foot, uh, one leg footstep for a minute and then double it, that'll give you your cadence. Sometimes watches aren't super accurate because it'll lock into your arm swing. And if you're on trail, it's going to be totally, you know, inaccurate. But um, so one thing to do is work on your cadence um, and then strength. Uh, you want to work on your foot strength specifically. So you're not really like, you can't really strengthen your ankles. Like there's nothing in the ankle joint that you're strengthening. It's more about your foot strength. Um, and when you think about it, it makes sense because your foot is your like platform for everything you do in running. Um, and so you want a really strong arch and, you know, big toe is kind of like your, you know, your toe off point. You should be thinking of your big toe as your propeller forward, right? So you really want to be working on um, foot strength and, and doing like toe yoga. I don't know if you guys have ever talked about that, but it's um, like right now you guys are sitting there, like try to just like stand up and uh, just lift your big toes and not your other toes. Like it's a, you know, mind body connection. That's also really important that you can kind of ingrain by doing these little things, um, you know, picking up rocks with your toes that can help strengthen your arch or like when you're sitting on the, you know, just watching TV or scrunching a towel, you know, on the ground, that's a common one. Um, but then there's other stuff like, um, you know, after you work on some of like those typical strength, foot strength things, you can do more with muscle fascia too in the lower leg. So like, um, you know, box step ups and like um, doing things like uh, at home, even you can just like draw a square on the ground and where you're doing like jumping from, you know, laterally from side to side, you know, those sorts of things. And that's gonna really, um, train your lower legs to be stronger and, th and stuff that you would need on technical terrain because you're in technical terrain, you're never running in a straight line either. You want to be kind of going like laterally and like at a diagonal um, and different things like that. So those are, um, you know, and you can look up like lower leg mobility, um, you know, and, and uh, prehab type workouts, you know, or some like, and a lot of those are great to just kind of like try to get the lower legs ready for, for strength or for uh, technical terrain but that's, that's where I would start for sure. Awesome. And love hearing you talk about the foot strength. Cause normally it's me always talking about that. So it's very refreshing hearing someone else talk about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think, um, it's super important, you know, and I guess for me, so I broke my ankle a couple of years ago. Um, and that's where I started thinking about it a lot. Cause I had a lot of then like small recurring pains and things that would happen in my foot just from, um, lack of strength after being, you know, like in a boot for eight weeks and then you know, not being able to run for several months. And so, um, yeah, like getting in the habit of doing all those little things is really important. Um, another good one you can do is, uh, like two toe heel raises where you stand on the edge of a step, um, and just have your big toe and your second toe on the step as your, um, lever basically. And you do a, t a heel raise just off of those two toes. Um, and that's, you know, like what you want to be using and running too. And you toe off, you want to be using your big toe mostly right so that helps train that so do like 10 per leg and you know start with that and that's super useful that's awesome i've never yeah. 
I mean, like, I know when you're at the top, I'm always on that second toe. I never thought about saying on the, on the edge of the step to make sure like you're fully on that. Yeah. Point. It's just a nice way to isolate it and really think about it. Um, and I also think, you know, the, again, that mind body connection of training, you know, new neural pathways to utilize your body in an efficient way. Cause we all like think we know how to run, but it's really a trained skill, you know? And so when you can, and it takes time and effort, right. So, to retrain it, but it's definitely doable. And it's by doing like all the little things that nobody really wants to do. <laughs> <Pretty much. laughs> yeah. The part that you never see when doing on social media. Yeah. You know, cause it's not like a big sexy thing, right? Like it's not like doing a deadlift or like, it's just like standing on a step and doing these little <laughs> tiny movements, but it's, but it's really important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You kind of talked about it a little bit, but, um, when we're, when you don't kind of start talking about the foot and ankle there in general, like full body, how important is having good mobility and stability as a runner, both like whether you're on the road or trail, but we'll go specifically trail. How important is that both that mobility and stability, like balance? Yeah. I, so, um, again, I'm going to reference back to Chloe Lanthier again. She did a great class, uh, webinar. Um, like it was kind of during the pandemic when I started, you know, tuning into a lot of her stuff. Um, and she was talking about like the muscle fascia and how mobility, you know, moving a joint through its range of motion is so important. Um, and having a healthy muscle fascia that, you know, it's lining everything and connecting everything. And it's how our muscles get, um, hydrated and nutrients and actually like communicate between each other, um, and how important that is. And so that, uh, was pretty eye opening to me because I didn't think about it. Like even in like nursing school, you like think about muscle fascia is just like the sack that surrounds your muscle, but it's actually like kind of like a spider's web of like very fine, um, like thinner than a like hair follicle. And they actually, that is like, they send messages like to fire different muscle groups. Right. So, um, having correct mobility, you know, uses that muscle fascia also correctly. And, and so just makes you more efficient. And one of the big things that too, I learned with her was that, you know, your muscle wants to move in a certain way, like the DNA of a muscle, like a hamstring is very highly fasciated. Like it's one of the most densely fasciated mu muscles in the body. So it wants to, you know, move in a certain way. So you can train it to do that. You know, you don't want to necessarily like be working against it as, if, as a runner, right? Like depends on what you're doing. You know, it's like, um, if you're doing like Olympic weightlifting, that's different than like running, you know, like as far as what the muscle wants to do and how you should train it. But, um, and same with for mobility. So with running, you want to have those things like have some uh, movement to it, but you don't want it to be lax. So people ask me a lot about yoga, right? Like, is it good to be doing these flexibility things? And it, you know, yes and no, right? Like if it's good for your mental health, you know, you enjoy it. That's one thing. Um, and I totally encourage people to do that. Um, however, like you don't want a lot of laxity in your, uh, joint, you know, you don't want a lot of laxity in your muscle as a runner. You want snappy, quick, uh, like muscle pullback and you want that the fibers to be working the way they want to. So, you, you know, like when you stretch a hamstring, you're just tearing muscle fascia really like and fiber you're not actually stretching any you know yes you're stretching and then it tears so that's not how the muscle likes to move you want it to be a dynamic um movement that is just sort of flushing the muscle fascia but not you know creating any damage um so 
you know, with mobility, I think it's important to train it in the correct way, but to have really good mobility and do like self-mobilization at home, which I don't think most people do either. So like getting the bands and looking up like, right, how to kind of move your hip joint in the right way um, and get some space in that, in that joint. So you flush it and, and kind of hydrate the muscle fascia. Um, so yeah, I guess that was kind of a roundabout answer to the question, but you know, it's, I think it's super important, especially because, you know, it increases your durability as an athlete, but also your efficiency, you know, as a runner. So no matter if you're on the road or the trail, you know, like road running, I find it's so repetitive that if um, there's a little bit of something off and maybe a little bit of um, misalignment or, um, you know, your gait, like you can get away with running for 30 minutes just fine. But if you're, you know, training for a marathon and you're up your mileage and your intensity, it's going to come out eventually and you'll be injured, you know? Um, and so having right, the correct and efficient movement is really important anywhere, I would say. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you're so like, it's always interesting when I either talk to runners or just see that things I put like on social media or whatever, mm -hmm. that there's so many like, I'm stretching, I'm stretching, I'm stretching, and I'm getting all these problems. And I, and I think there's this disconnect and, or I know there's this disconnect with a lot of people of like, like you can make an area as mobile as you want, but if you don't teach your body how to use that movement, you just gained, like, you're not going to help yourself anyway. Right. And I think, um, yeah, and I, and I think it depends on, so right for runners specifically, right. Like we've always been taught and I, you know, right. To like just stretch, but that's not really what you want to be doing for your muscle. You want it to be a dynamic movement. That's helping to flush out toxins. Right. And like move things. And I think, um, even in the morning, like when you get up and you watch like a cat or dog get out of bed, they're stretching because they're like moving that muscle fascia to like wake up the day, but they're not like holding it. Right. They're not stretching and holding it for 25 seconds. They're just like moving through it. So I guess I don't even like the word stretching that much. I think I would call it mobility, right? Like moving your joints through their like range of motion, um, which, you know, in turn helps flush that muscle. Basically. Yeah. 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 And that's very, it is funny that it's so true with the animals. Cause yeah, they are right. there for like two seconds and then they're like on their way. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I should, don't want to knock yoga. Like I said earlier, I think like those sorts of dynamic movements and the strength moves I think are, are important, right? Like you get a lot of wonderful core, like other benefits for core and, and muscle strength and, and muscle endurance. Um, but for running specifically, um, you know, I, I don't want somebody doing it, like doing yoga five days a week, right? Like, um, you know, a couple of days a week for mental health and for, to get that, you know, movement is great. Um, and in like a recovery mode, you know, but if it's dynamic still, like, I just don't want them like, yeah, doing those sorts of long holds, but yeah, because there's just other things, you know, and then again, like we're only, we all have only so much time, you know, in the week. And so it's like, I would prefer them to be doing like these sort of, um, dynamic movements, like box step-ups, you know, it's going to give you better muscle endurance, even if you're only doing, you know, or jump rope, you know, like doing, if you're working from home and like every two hours you get up and do five minutes of, you know, like jump rope, that's huge that like definitely is going to give you a lot of benefit down the line mm -hmm. so, compared to like doing yoga five days a week but yeah <laughs> <laughs> no that's a great point for anything like if some you know for anyone who's like I don't have time to fit in whatever yeah if you just take five minutes a couple times a day to work on whatever that is like you can have a lot of progress yeah 
Definitely. And I think um, one of the other things too, like I do most of my strength work barefoot, like as an added bonus too, like, um, and again, because when I say strength work, like it's, I don't think that's the other thing, I guess people, you know, it matters where your, what your background is and where you're coming from and what your traditional idea of strength is, you know, and is it like, right, heavy weight strength or is it um, body weight based stuff? And, and so I do a combination of both, but I try to do everything barefoot, even when I'm doing like deadlifts and things like that. Cause I do think that it benefits my, you know, it's like an, a, a freebie, you know, you're getting a little bit of free footwork in there too. Um, of course it depends, like just need to be sure you're healthy and that things are like in alignment when you're doing heavier weight, I would say barefoot just so that you don't cause a problem. But I like you more and more every minute. <laughs> I love the barefoot training. <laughs> yeah. I think it's great. Yeah. I'm very, it's really funny. Cause people are always like, aren't you worried about dropping things on your feet? I'm like, do you normally drop weights on your feet when you're at the right. gym? Like, is this no. a thing? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it crosses my mind every once in a while, but it's more like when I'm doing like a circuit or something quickly that I'm like, and I'm dropping a plate or something, you know, that I'm like, Oh yeah, I gotta remember. I don't have any, <laughs> shoes on. but like, right. Even if I had shoes on, I wouldn't want to drop a plate on my toe. Like <laughs> right? and still, yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, it's um, like, I'm more cautious walking around. Well, the people at my gym know I'm barefoot. So they're, they're more careful probably, but it's like, I'm always like, are they taking a plate off? Do I need to wash my feet around that person? Sure. Yeah. I guess, um, I work out from home, you know, we have like a nice gym here that we we've made. So, um, but I do actually take my shoes off of them at my local gym. I will take my shoes off to work, you know, like do some body weight based stuff too, you know, like, um, and core work. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's take a quick break to talk about zero shoes. You know, I love being barefoot. I am barefoot as much as possible, but when you're out in public, sometimes that's frowned upon. And when you're walking around on concrete and asphalt, in the Phoenix summers, it's highly unsafe. That's when Zero Shoes comes in handy. These shoes allow my feet to be as barefoot as possible, to allow my feet to still work like they were made to work. And the great thing about these shoes is they last. They have a 5,000 mile sole warranty, meaning you rarely have to replace these shoes and they have a wide range of options. So whether you're looking for sandals, something for casual wear, or something for your sports or work, they have you covered. You can go check them out at Zero Shoes, that's spelled X-E-R-O shoes.com slash go slash get your fix PT. And you can find all of my partnerships at getyourfixpt.com slash partners. And now back to our conversation kind of going a different direction, but still important. Um, how do we go about preparing ourselves for altitude? If we're going to be going to a very like high altitude location, and it's just not an, something that we're used to living in. Sure. So there's, you know, several different like research studies, lots of research has been done on this, I guess, you know, um, and a lot of it is, you know, not necessarily from this aspect of like living at low altitude and doing an event at high altitude. It's a lot of it's been done for elites who want to do the um, like live low, train high, met, or am I saying that right way? Where they want to race low and train high so that they get the kind of added benefit. Um, and so there's been all sorts of different, you know, they've looked at it from both ways of live high, train low, live low, train high, you know, so it's, there's, I guess the baseline that I've come up with is that it's very individual. doesn't matter. <laughs> like, 
However, um, some of the things, you know, that you should try if you know you're going to altitude, um, you can use a couple of different things that are helpful. So uh, one of the ways that I tell a lot of athletes is um, to use heat acclimatization um, as kind of like a fake altitude. So the body kind of responds similarly to um, heat acclimatization as it does to uh, altitude acclimatization. So if you're going, you know, you have a race um, at altitude, you don't have to necessarily like, I mean, although saunas are fun to use regardless, I think, and, and um, useful for our health, but about like two weeks out from your race day, if you have access to a sauna, um, that's a good time to start going every night or, you know, yeah, actually every night. So you want to, if you're a morning workout person, work out in the morning and then in the evening, use the sauna um, for 20 to 30 minutes. Um, you know, pretty high temperature, but nothing creating that like 200 degree crazy, but like, you know, pretty high temperature so that you're sweating and uh, like just sitting there and you maybe can feel your heart rate rise a little bit, but it doesn't need to be crazy. Um, and then you can get a little added bonus if you kind of extend that like dehydration window for another like 45 minutes after you get out and like, don't take a cold shower, you can take a hot shower um, and then try to like kind of not drink anything for a little bit because it will help just to increase. So what's happening at altitude um, is our kidneys are working to, the body's basically just trying to push more um, oxygenated blood around, right? And so one of the ways that the body does that is by making our blood more concentrated. So we start to, the kidneys start to diurese more and get rid of excess fluid basically, and which then helps produce more EPO in our system. Um, so that we produce more red blood cells and it's like a whole cascade of effects. But um, so a similar thing happens in the sauna where with that a little bit of extra dehydration window, we continue to diurese a little bit and continue to produce, produce those hormones in our body and enzymes um, that are similar to uh, what would happen at altitude. So for the two weeks out from your race day, you can start doing that. I'd say every day if you can um, for 10 days in a row or so. Um, and then go every other day and then, you know, stop doing it the several days out from your race, just cause you want to give your body some recovery time. Cause it is a little bit stressful for the body to do that. Um, and I think that does help the other option. If you don't have access to a sauna, um, you can do hot baths too, where you're, you know, you just sit in a bath for 15 to 25 minutes at night. Um, and a similar thing, you know, try to not take a cold shower after and you want it pretty hot like if your arms are out of the bath you want them to kind of be like sweating a little bit on their own you know that type of thing um and so a similar thing is happening there where you're increasing your core temperature hopefully uh increasing your plasma volume i think that's it, been shown that over another thing that so like i said we're trying to concentrate our blood our bodies when we go to altitude so you're losing plasma volume and that makes your blood thicker and so one of the ways we can try to offset that is um with this heat training and um, hopefully boosting our plasma volume a little bit before we go. So baths, even, you know, like a few days out from your race, if you're like in a hotel, you can take a bath at night, um, for the couple, you know, a couple nights before the race to help hopefully boost your plasma volume a little bit. Um, now if you can, you know, altitude tents and that sort of stuff is, um, certainly been proven to work sometimes. <laughs> and so that's, you know, it's, an interesting thing, like when you look at the research that, you know, they've tried lots of different, like if you live at 6,000 feet and you have an altitude tent and you can be in it for, you know, nine to 12 hours a night, like this would be the outcome type of thing. So it's kind of precise, right? But it is shown to help. Um, you know, we were curious to see, we have an altitude tent and I found, I went to altitude for a little over a week um, 
which felt horrible. <laughs> and then I came home and, and was able to use the altitude tent to kind of maintain my adaptations that I achieved actually at true altitude. Like the best way to actually acclimate is to just be at true altitude, but not everybody can afford to do that, you know, and, and uh, you need it, you know, 10 days uh, before a race at altitude is, you know, that's a long vacation to take off sometimes. So, um, yeah, so I had, I had gone out about a month before my, a recent event, well, over the summer, and uh, then came home and was home for about six weeks and just used the altitude tent for the, that entirety every night um, to try to maintain what I had uh, achieved already. And I do think that helped. Um, you know, they say with the altitude tents, you need to be in them for, you know, yeah, 10 to 12 hours, which is a long time, like not hopefully athletes get to sleep for 10 hours, but usually not. Right. Um, and so, you know, you could certainly, if you work from home, maybe work from inside the tent for a few hours a day or something like that. Um, you know, I think, and like I said, it's very individual. I think everybody's a little bit different. Um, you know, we were in the tent and Aaron like had horrible sleep and recovery was really bad in his leg. Like he just couldn't train the way he wanted to after using it, you know, and where I was like, Oh, this, but I had a been at altitude. I was like, this feels fine. Um, and I was able to train just fine. Uh, so, you know, I have to weigh those kind of like benefit slash risk, you know? Uh, and so you can rent the tents, you know, I think they're like 600 bucks a month or something to rent, which is quite a bit. Um, you know, but if you have the ability to do that, it might be worth experimenting with it. Um, and I do think the, like the Hypoxico system, if you rent it, then, you know, they give you the option to buy type of scenario, right? But, um, you know, so there is that. Um, and so then, you know, if really all you can do is just go out to your race, you know, you, you've probably heard of people saying like, should I go out three days before or like the day before? And honestly, it's probably better to go out just the day before your race, your body kind of gives you a 24 hour to like 36 hour window of, of not realizing it's at altitude yet. Um, <laughs> and so it doesn't like try to jumpstart those adaptations, which make you kind of feel like it's the adaptations that make you feel bad, right? Like it's our body trying to concentrate our blood and then our heart rate goes up and our respiratory rate goes up. And then, you know, our perceived rate of perceived exertion goes up because it feels harder. Um, and our body's kind of doing that on purpose, right. To try to acclimate us. But so for about, yeah, 24 to 36 hours, you have a bit of a window where your body's not, doesn't know yet, but it's at <laughs> so sometimes people do very well that way. And they just go out and they race, you know, they fly in on a Friday, they race Saturday morning and it's fine. Um, I would say the, like the worst time frame is probably three days out to arrive and then race. Cause that's when your body's like really trying hard to like catch up and so you feel the worst um typically again everybody's different so it's it's hard to say but um and i think for me you know like if i could i would like at least a month at, at real altitude to feel like i was like actually acclimated um you know they say that it takes like uh three months basically for our body to like kind of recycle its blood you know and like produce new red blood cells so like ideally yeah you have three months to go out and like produce a whole bunch of new red blood cells but you know, that's never really going to happen unless you live at altitude. And it's interesting because I talked to a lot of athletes who like live at altitude. Um, and I think, you know, there's not that many places in our country anyway that you can live at like 8,000 feet, you know, it's like a few places in Colorado. And I would guess, um, like New Mexico, you know, in that whole little window in the Rocky area, you can, um, 
but even for them, I think racing over 10,000 feet is still hard. You know, I don't think it ever feels good. (laughs) Um, but we were recently in Telluride. And so, you know, those folks that lived in like Boulder and Denver area, like they have the opportunity to get up higher. Um, and I think that's important too, just for your mental aspect to like, if you're going to be racing in an an event that goes up to over 12,000 feet, like if you live in a place where you can go on the weekends and get above 12,000 feet, go do it so that you can feel what that might feel like to mentally prepare yourself, you know, because again, like it's okay to put like, especially in a race, right. A scenario where it's like, we've got this one shot, like it's okay to push when you're doing that. And maybe yeah, your rate of perceived exertion is going to feel high. Um, but your body's not going to let you like necessarily overdo it, you know? So it's good to like, feel that and say, okay, what does it feel like when I push, you know, up this hill at 12,000 feet, you know, so that you're prepared. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, last thing I wanted to talk about today, since I know you've done some work with it, um, and enjoy working with it is, um, the differences like females obviously have our hormonal changes, both like when we're younger with our monthly cycles, and then we hit menopause and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of changes going on. Females are definitely different than males. Um, how does that impact like training, nutrition, hydration, like all of the stuff. Yeah. I mean, so we could do a whole show just about this, <laughs> That's like I was um, you know, and like, so some of the stuff that we've been talking about, you know, and I guess the big thing with it is just to realize that it makes a difference, you know, in our training, that our hormonal cycle is going to make a huge difference. And if, you know, and, and don't feel bad if you've never even considered it, because most, that's what I hear all the time is that women, we just, I, and I myself too, like never thought about it until I was like, Oh, I, why do I feel so crummy today? Oh, because like I'm in my high hormone phase and this is, you know, it is harder to actually do this run today than, you know, it would have been last week, you know? So, um, I think that's the first huge thing that, uh, I really actually enjoy talking with women about because, and, um, male coaches and male athletes and because everybody knows a female right we all have a mom or sister daughter somebody right that I think it's useful to you know end kind of the taboo about discussing periods and like hormone cycles and um, so yeah I think just understanding that it even makes a difference is huge because it does um, and so I remember when I first realized it was, it was like an epiphany for me I was like oh yeah of course you know so that's the big thing is just to like take that first step and be like, duh, of course this like, you know, affects me. Um, and then to track your cycle, right? So there's tons of really great apps out there now where you can track your cycle. Um, one that I've been trialing, which I think is open to the public is wild AI. I think it's open for everybody at this point, but, um, that one's really good. And then, uh, fitter woman, F I T R woman is another one. And then I think now like Garmin and, I think Apple health and all those, you can also track your cycle, which is pretty important. But, um, so some of the things to think about once you've like tracked your cycle for a few months and you realize like here's day one, um, and to kind of get an average length of your cycle. Um, and again, this is, you know, everybody's different and some cycles are 28 days, which is what most things are based on. Um, you know, when you look at it, like a, a tracking app, but some women have a 40 day cycle, you know, so it's like not your normal 30 day average. But, um, so once you know, like where that, those days are, you can kind of think about where your high hormone phase in and, um, is, and that's good to know because that's typically when, 
sometimes, you know, PMS basically, right, is some people feel awful and they have a hard time doing workouts or they, um, you know, low motivation and different things. But sometimes it's during your actual period, women will feel that way. So again, it's like, you know, taking note of your own feelings and, and tracking it so that you can plan, right? Um, and as a coach, like I try to encourage people to do that, but also try to remember, you know, have them put it in their, their log too, so that I can kind of go off of that also. But um, so during your high hormone phase is when you've got um, also, yeah, like a bit thicker blood. So it's similar to like when we were talking about altitude, um, you know, for, for females, if you're like in your high hormone phase, um, it's kind of like your body's doing a similar thing, but your um, plasma level is less. So our blood is thicker. Um, and that can, again, raise our heart rate, raise our respiratory rate. Um, we have an increased core temperature. So usually we have poor sleep during that time, which then could lead to poor recovery during that time. Um, and I hate when I talk about this sometimes because it makes it sound so terrible. Like <laughs> it's like the worst, <laughs> the worst, but it's, you know, like, and for some people it's not so bad. Um, some people will know exactly what I'm talking about and be like, gosh, this is, yeah, it is terrible. Um, you know, some women have like horribly like bad cramping or like different things that can um, affect them. But um, there are a few ways that you can like offset some of this stuff. And so it's like, you know, first of all, understanding that these are things are going to happen. And, you know, if you have a coach talking to them about like when you feel worst, you know, the worst, worst, so that you can, um, you know, be kinder to yourself and, you know, be like, yeah, I'm maybe not going to hit those paces today or that intensity today because um, it's going to actually literally be harder to do so. Um, but also you can, you know, you want to be prehydrating before your workouts and consuming more, like you said, I think uh, before we started, like you've talked to some nutritionists about this, that the importance of understanding how nutrition plays into your hormone cycle, um, because during a high hormone phase, you need to have a bit more carbohydrates on board when you're working out um, because you can't access your stored carbohydrates. Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of, you can um, try to lower your core temperature, you know, like I tell women, and especially in the summer months that you know, this is a good time to like freeze some, uh, bandanas, things like that. I actually have sometimes when I have athletes doing longer, like self catered long runs, I'll have them like put a t-shirt in the freezer even, you know, so they can like take that with them. Um, cause again, like the brain is a powerful thing too. And so like, yes, your core temperature is going to be a little higher, but also you're going to think it's higher than, you know, so if you can like do some tricks to like take it down a notch, I think you'll feel better and go farther. Um, you can, uh, so like, you know, sleep hygiene is huge. I think for everybody all the time, I don't think we talk about it enough and just recovery aspect, but, um, that makes it a bit tougher for women, you know, during their high hormone phase to recover. So, you know, maybe the high hormone phase, isn't the best time to be like doing, going for a PR or like doing really, really heavy weights in the gym or like, um, some other things too, because you just probably won't recover. You won't benefit as much from it. You know, like, yes, you can do it. Um, but they're, you know, during your low hormone phase, it's probably a better option or during your, um, um, the middle of your phase, you have a bit more estrogen. And so then doing some real heavy weights is a good, good idea because estrogen is a anabolic, uh, hormone. And so you're actually building more muscle and you have a little bit more estrogen around. Um, 
yeah, progesterone is a bit, is catabolic. And so if you're in high hormone, you have more progesterone and that creates more muscle breakdown. Um, and the, you know, with nutrition, you can kind of offset some of those things too. You want to do a lot of uh, leucine during your high hormone phase. Um, but yeah, so there's lots of, lots of different things. And I kind of jumped all over the board with that, but, um, I think the best thing is to like, you know, know that it's going to affect you, uh, you know, take, take ownership of it and like, know what your cycle is. Um, and then kind of, you know, go from there as far as like doing some homework on your own to say, here's when I feel the best, here's when I feel the worst. And, you know, and you'll, you know, if you do note those things, then you can go back and say, oh yeah, this run felt amazing. I did this tempo workout that was like super great. And it's put, you're probably in like a low hormone phase, you know, accessing all your stored glycogen, um, slept really well the night before, you know, so that's like all those things that, uh, work together, you know, to your benefit. Um, and like I said, you know, it's not the end of the world. If you have an event, like in your high hormone phase, you just have to realize like, okay, so I should probably be eating extra carbohydrates, you know, doing some more hydration, making sure my electrolytes are balanced. Um, and then right, like trying some tricks if you, you know, like with ice bandanas or something like that to kind of make yourself feel a little bit better. Awesome. And yes, we may have to schedule a second podcast just to dive into all of that deeper. Yeah, that there's tons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, to close it out today, Sarah, if someone has more questions for you, wants to reach out to you, just wants to follow you, where can they find you? Sure. So I'm on Instagram as Sarah Kai's runs. Um, and then our website for coaching is easternmountainendurance.com. Um, and that's a good place too to follow us where you can, you know, email and whatnot to through that site, but, um, or they can just email me at sarahkais at mac.com too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This was a great conversation. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me on. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. And before I close out, I have two questions for you. Do you feel like you're in a plateau with your progress? Or do you feel like you're stuck in an injury cycle? Both of these issues are very common and both of them can be fixed very easily. Most often, both of these issues come down to how you're training or more importantly, what's missing in your training. By figuring out what's missing and adding that in, your training performance will improve, your racing performance will improve, and your injury cycle will break. I invite you to get on a free 30-minute consultation call with me to discuss what's going on with you, your life, your training, so we can really figure out what needs to be done to improve that. So head over to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash doc to book a free call with me. Thank you again for listening today. I greatly appreciate it and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And until next time, let's go out and be highly functional.